Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Between October 1st, 2000 and April 30th of this year, the remains of 2,541 migrants who had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border illegally were recovered from Cochise, Pima, and Yuma counties in Arizona. That's according to the Arizona Daily Star Recovered Human Remains Project. In order to store the bodies, Pima County installed a second morgue refrigerator. They call it the second cooler. That's also the name of a new documentary film, which shows this week at the Red Rocks Film Festival in southern Utah. There are approximately 12 million migrants in the U.S. illegally. Second Cooler asks, why did they come? Are they caught up in a system that's fully apparent neither to them nor to us? Are U.S. citizens innocent bystanders? Are U.S. citizens caught up in the same system? Who benefits? We'll be talking with filmmaker Ellen Jimerson and with Jordan Bullard, who has worked with displaced migrants and who contributed music to the film. And uh, we bring in uh, filmmaker uh, Ellen or uh, Ellen Jemerson uh, right now. Uh, thanks for joining us for the program. Do we have you? I have Jordan Bullard. Hi, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Uh, welcome to the program. Do we have Ellen Jemerson with us? Yes, I'm right here. Very good. Uh, I should mention that uh, Ellen Jemerson, uh, I believe um, you are working with a uh, church. Is that correct? Yes, I'm minister to the community at Weatherly Heights Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, you have several degrees, master's, Ph.D., uh, let's see, master's in Southern History from Samford, uh, Ph.D. in 20th Century U.S. History from University of Houston, and a master's in Theological Studies from Vanderbilt. That's right. And you've been studying these, these kinds of issues. Yes, I have. I've been studying uh, immigration for maybe seven years or so. Uh, you know, particularly this immigration uh, issue for about seven years. And uh, Jordan Bullard, uh, you are, among other things, a musician, I understand. You contributed some music to the film. Uh, yeah, that's correct. I, I wrote and recorded four, I guess it's now four, four songs for the film, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you two met, uh, I think, in, in Arizona somewhere, just by chance? Yeah, it really was by chance. Um, we were both on a walk um, from the the border of Mexico to Tucson, which is about 70 miles. And uh, we, had to, we had to beat the heat early in the morning, and then once we finished our miles for the day, we all kind of broke out our books and guitars and food and everything. So that's, uh, Ellen and I were both on that walk, and I played one of my songs that she really liked, and that's kind of how it all got started. Well, let's hear the, uh, introduce uh, people to the film. Um, let's hear the trailer. This is a couple of minutes. Um, just uh, some highlights from, from the film. Let's hear the trailer right now. Why have millions of Latin Americans left their homes and families to make an illegal, expensive, dangerous, and sometimes deadly journey north? In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. The government understood at the time they signed it that they were signing away uh, life, life rights for a large part of its, its rural population. It wasn't a surprise uh, for the government leaders and it wasn't a surprise for the peasantry. More people have died crossing the U.S.-Mexico border that died as a result of the September 11th terrorist attacks and Hurricane Katrina combined. So this Ellen Jimerson, uh, the, the title of the film, this is uh, pretty hard hitting, and, and you, if you watch the film, you see the picture of this uh, second morgue that had to be put up. There are a lot of people dying out there. There are. There are a lot of people dying out there, and the figure for... Uh, the sort of, you know, the agreed-upon figure among people who watch it is somewhere around five or 6,000 bodies that have been recovered uh, all up and down the uh, border. Um, and, uh, of course, those are the bodies that are recovered and doesn't take into account uh, the fact that a body can totally disappear in the Sonora Desert in a matter of about 10 days. Uh, so it doesn't take into account the people whose bodies are never stumbled across. 
you have in the film uh, some maps with uh, with red dots, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of dots in in some a of these of areas uh, near Tucson, near some other uh, near place places, uh, and each red dot is is a, a recovered remain, right? A, a person who died out there. Well, actually, each red dot can represent more than one person who died out there. Uh, there are so many deaths that there would not be enough, you know, any way to to put a red dot for each person. So when you look at a dot uh, on that map in the movie or however you see the map, you're looking at a dot that represents probably more than one person who died. Hmm. And, of course, the film goes into why did they come. We'll get into the, to that a bit. And there, there is disagreement about that. Uh, Jordan Bullard, you, have you, you've worked near the border region, have you? Yeah, that's correct. I worked um, in a small town in northern Sonora called Agua Prieta. I was the um, United States coordinator for a resource center for um, recently deported and displaced migrants. And I also worked with um, H-2A workers in the tobacco fields in central North Carolina. What were people telling you that you were talking to there? You know, a lot of the sort of the recurring story that I that I heard was people traveling for family, um, and oftentimes it was you know they weren't people weren't able to find work uh, in Mexico, and you know for a lot of different reasons that the uh, that the documentary really speaks to, but weren't able to find work in Mexico and decided to try to travel to the U.S. to find work to support their family, or they already had family in the U.S. and they were uh, trying to cross back to reunite themselves with their family. Um, so family was always a huge, huge theme in the conversation that I had with folks on the border. Nolan Jemerson, you have some some heartbreaking interviews in this one lady I'm remembering. She's remembering the life they had back in Michoacan, and then I, I believe her husband had died, and so the, the, her life is altered now. Uh, what are you hearing uh, for, as you interview migrants? Why are they coming? Well, as I talk to them, of course, they tell me um, sort of basic things that uh, there was no work uh, or they wanted to be with their family, but primarily that there was no work. Um, So that's what they tell me. Um, They also tell me uh, how treacherous that crossing is, how dangerous, how humiliating how expensive. Um, they tell me about their companions who died. Um, the, you know, being threatened by their coyotes. Um, those are the kinds of things they talk to me about. By the way, how did you get into the, these issues? Was it more from the historical, geopolitical aspect? Or was it from talk, meeting people and talking to them, hearing their stories? What, how, how did you get into these issues? Well, um, actually, I got into it because I'm the child of civil rights activists in 1950s and 1960s in two of the worst places in the country for um, segregationist and racist sentiment, Albany, Georgia, and Birmingham, Alabama. So I kind of grew up on social justice. And then I got my Ph.D. and, and uh, in history and sort of had a good feel for the main lines of the relationships between the United States and uh, Mexico, Central and South America, the sort of overall um, relationship of domination and subordination. Um, And so then I went to back to school again, to Vanderbilt. I was interested in liberation theology. And a lot of liberation theology has to do with examining um, the reality of poor people from the perspective of the Bible and the Bible of, from the perspective of poor people, particularly people who have been made poor by economic policy and uh, military dictatorship. And so when the, um, when the debate sort of surfaced or when things began to heat up, I went to a meeting once and I was just so taken aback to hear, this was in about 2005, to hear people stand up in a public meeting uh, sponsored by an interfaith uh, group and say things about other human beings that I had not heard people say in public since I was a child uh, in Birmingham. And I was just horrified, and I thought, are we going to do this again? 
and uh, I just felt like with my education and my upbringing that I ought to have something to say. Uh, but I didn't really know why people were in the country illegally. Um, and so I just began to investigate. I went to the border for the first time. And all up and down the border, consistently what I heard was NAFTA. Hmm. Let's, uh, that's a great segue for uh, the, the next clip that we've uh, prepared from the film. This is uh, about NAFTA and, and its effects. And we, we tend to think of, uh, you know, complaints from labor unions in this country that uh, jobs will be outsourced. But uh, the, the film, uh, several uh, people in the film are talking about its effects in, say, Mexico. Let's hear this clip from the film. This is from The Second Cooler. It's a documentary film which will be uh, showing, I believe, on Friday and Saturday at the Red Rocks uh, Film Festival. It's in southern Utah, various locations, uh, Hurricane Zion Park, uh, other areas. Uh, more information if you just Google up uh, the Red Rocks Film Festival. We're talking with the uh, director, producer of the film, Ellen Jimerson, and with Jordan Bullard, who's uh, worked in some of these issues and provides some music for the film. Let's hear this clip now. The government understood at the time they signed it that they were signing away uh, sent life, life rights for a large part of its, its rural population. It wasn't a surprise uh, for the government leaders and it wasn't a surprise for the peasantry. What happened is that small farmers just got swept away. The people who are hungriest, the poorest, uh, have least access to, to jobs, who uh, no longer can sell the, the small subsistence crops that they've been raising are those that are forced to migrate. They have no other alternative. The result is the same on both sides of the border, and that is that the elites uh, benefit enormously. The, the folks who already have the educational opportunities and already have the wealth and already have the power, uh, their wealth and power is enhanced dramatically and, and uh, the poor are the ones who are excluded, and, uh, and the middle class is squeezed. We can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't have a global political economy that helps drive people from their homelands and then deny them the right to come to places where they're able to achieve the livelihoods that have been denied to them, in large part because of our actions. The only way we can do that is by being morally corrupt. And that's what the system of global apartheid is. It's morally corrupt. That's a clip from the new documentary film, The Second Cooler. By the way, The Second Cooler refers to the second morgue uh, refrigerator that uh, Pima County put in because there, there's so many uh, people dying out there. Um, and we're talking with filmmaker Ellen Jimerson and with Jordan Bullard who's worked in these issues and provided the music for the film. Um, at the end of that clip, Ellen Jimerson, this is pretty hard-hitting. I believe this is a professor from Vassar. It calls it, first to apartheid, and calls it morally corrupt, this, this system of inequality that's been set up and exacerbated, apparently, by NAFTA. Right. I mean, it is morally corrupt. It, it wasn't just acerbated, uh, um exacerbated by NAFTA. I mean, it was. But the moral corruption comes in the fact that, as the movie points out, as Scott Whiteford says very clearly, they knew at the time they signed it, the presidents of the United States and Mexico <clears throat> and Canada's prime um, minister, Brian Mulroney. Uh, you know, I heard that all up and down the border, but, of course, I didn't want to put my name on that point of view until I researched it, so I read the North American Free Trade Agreement. And it's there in black and white. They knew they would be displacing um, smaller uh, traditional farmers uh, in particular, but also smaller business people, uh, because what the free trade agreement is, is uh, what makes it free is that the products uh, like subsidized U.S. corn and beans, <clears throat> uh, the those factories, those industries no longer have to pay 
tariffs to transport their goods to Mexico, for example. Uh, so there's no way those small traditional farmers can compete with uh, subsidized U.S. factory-produced corn, for example, uh, when those people no longer have to pay tariffs. Um, so it's in black and white. They knew they would be displacing people. That's why they militarized the border. And it's in black and white that the deaths of migrants was part and parcel of the southwestern border strategy. Again, you know, I was not going to put my name on that point of view until I read it for myself, and I did. And they used the language of deterrence. Uh, the idea was that a limited number of people would uh, die um, because of the uh, militarization, the closing off of the urban areas, or, or attempting to close it off. Uh, a limited number of di would die, and word would go back to Mexican communities, and people would stop trying to cross. All of that is in writing. Um, so yes, it's moral, morally corrupt is a very good way to describe it. <clears throat> and Joe Nevins calls it apartheid because it, we do have a very clear demarcation line. Um, and the other thing that factors into that that I get into in the movie is that the United States has two separate legal entry systems. Uh, one that that is beneficial to Canadians and Western Europeans and one that is less beneficial to impossible for poor people or indigenous people from Latin America um, as well as most parts of Asia and Africa. Uh, tell me about Article 27, something I learned about in the film. It's something internal to Mexico, which, which uh, was instrumental in displacing many farmers. Right. Article 27 uh, of the Mexican Constitution was the article that had been part of a, uh, an era of reform, of land reform in Mexico, that provided subsidies to these small traditional farmers uh, who often live on communally held lands and don't have title to that land. Um, so Article 27 uh, repealed or took away those subsidies, those benefits that they were giving the farmers to try to keep them on their lands and keep them able to survive uh, in their traditional way of life. Uh, so Article 27 was not technically a part of NAFTA, but it is very much a part and parcel of the whole free trade, free market, economic liberalism package, which hit uh, Mexico and Central America very hard, um, but which has also hit the United States hard, um, which is why, you know, I wanted to have the um, sequence in there on how free trade has devastated uh, the textile industry in Alabama. Jordan Bullard, you, you've talked, I think you've talked with a lot of farmers, see the farm workers, people who are farmers back in the, in, in Mexico, is that the case? Yeah, I spoke with, in Mexico, I, I worked some with um, coffee farmers in southern Mexico, um, and I also worked with farm workers in central North Carolina, so I, I definitely got the, you know, what, what life is like for people who are in that kind of work on both sides of the border. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. Contrast those two. Well, I, I definitely um, you know, agree with Ellen that life as a subsistence farmer in Mexico just becomes more and more difficult. Um, you know, as big corporations in Mexico are able to afford corn that's grown in Iowa at a lower price or, or in, a, in a more efficient way now because of NAFTA than a subsistence corn farmer in you know, a place like Chiapas in southern Mexico, um, it, that therefore displaces subsistence farm workers. Um, and, you know, the same can be said for uh, for coffee workers. After the end of the Cold War, or excuse me, during the Cold War, the United States was holding up a floor under coffee prices so that coffee-producing regions throughout the world wouldn't fall under the influence of communism. After the Cold War ended, that floor was removed and coffee prices plummeted. And people who made that decision in the United States um, didn't take into account what effect that would have on people's livelihoods, um, you know, in, in Mexico and in Central America. Um, and, you know, life as a farm worker in the United States in places like 
you know, central North Carolina or um, southern Texas, uh, the central coast of California. It's very, very difficult. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to keep um, farmers, farm owners accountable um, to to both immigration laws and to law to keep them accountable um, in all of this process because there's so much red tape, there's so much inefficiency, um, and, you know, truth be told, these people are so deep into the shadows that so few people really know about it, and it makes life very difficult. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, We'll come back, of course, with Ellen Jimerson, who is the filmmaker. The film is The Second Cooler. It's uh, playing... Uh, at the Red Rocks Film Festival in southern Utah. You can uh, just Google Red Rocks Film Festival for more information on that. And uh, with Jordan Bullard, who's worked with Displaced Migrants, who contributed music to this film, uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. By the way, following the break, we'll hear some uh, comments on the other side of uh, this political equation that are included in the film. We'll uh, talk a little bit more about arguments on the other side of NAFTA as well and uh, get into telling some some stories, some of these heartbreaking stories of migrants who died, family members of those who died. Uh, the second cooler, by the way, is uh, refers to the second uh, morgue refrigerator that Pima County, Arizona, had to put in because so many people are dying in that area. And Ellen Jimerson used that as the name for her documentary. More following the break. Waste not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Between 2000 and this year, the remains of 2,541 migrants who had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border illegally were recovered from Cochise, Pima, and Yuma counties in Arizona. In order to store the bodies, Pima County installed a second morgue refrigerator, and they call it the second cooler. That's the name of a new documentary film, which is showing this week at Red Rocks Film Festival in southern Utah. There were approximately 12 million, or are approximately 12 million migrants in the U.S. uh, illegally. The second cooler asks, why do they come? Are they caught in a system that's fully apparent neither to them nor to us? Are U.S. citizens innocent bystanders? Are U.S. citizens caught up in the same system? And who benefits? That's a key question that the film asks. Who benefits? We'll get into that. We're talking with filmmaker Ellen Jimerson and with Jordan Bullard, who's worked with displaced migrants and who contributed music to the film. You're welcome to join this conversation. We'd love to get your comments. Maybe you have a story to tell. The uh, number to call is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. About 20 minutes left in the program, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where three people have liked our post on this subject. Vivian Baji, Ricky White, and Amber Garcia. So thank you for responding there. Let's uh, hear another uh, clip from the the film. And uh, Ellen Jimerson uh, does include some uh, some opposing voices, you might uh, call it, some, some people who are explaining the rationale for a strong border um, and, and for slowing down uh, illegal immigration. Uh, this is the clip titled Immigration Law. This isn't about race. This isn't about anybody's ethnic background. It is about the law. We are not against immigration. Our job is to stop terrorists and their weapons coming across our borders. While we're doing that, we encounter illegal immigration. But there is a way to come into the country legally. And if you're not doing that, it is our duty to stop you and make you do things right. 
For most Latin Americans and for all poor people and all indigenous people who live on communally held lands, there is no line to get into in order to enter the United States legally. America has two basic systems by which a person may cross its borders legally. One system is for Canadians, Western Europeans, and some Eastern Europeans. They may enter with only a passport. Another system is for Latin Americans, Africans, and most Asians. They must have a visa to enter the U.S. legally. Canada um, and Latin America are treated quite differently for immigration purposes. Canadians aren't even considered aliens. They're considered foreign nationals, so they can freely come back and forth from Canada to the United States. Como guatemaltecos, a veces, que ustedes saben que en muchos países son diferentes. People who don't own property and are very, very poor or live on communally held property, um, it is highly unlikely that they could show the strong enough ties to their home country in order to come. The number one reason that people are denied from coming to the United States is because of money. Porque nos hacen un estudio socioeconómico y... The question I get asked most is, why don't they come legally? They don't come legally because they can't. That's a passage from the movie uh, The Second Cooler, which is showing at the Red Rocks Film Festival in southern Utah this week. We have with us filmmaker Ellen Jimerson and also uh, Jordan Bullard. Ellen Jimerson, uh, before we get into some of the opposing arguments, uh, it's very interesting at the end. The biggest reason for denial of access is money. I wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah, uh, and that's, you know, as the clip showed, and by the way, that's Martin Sheen's uh, voice. Yes, uh, I, I neglected to, uh, to to say that. That's a good get, yeah, to get him as yeah, narrator. Yeah, he very kindly provided the narration and did a spectacular job. And I also want to say that the score is an original score uh, by Joe Harchenko, so just, just a shout-out to him, too. But, yeah, that's one of the big problems um, is that the system basically is rigged against uh, poor and indigenous people from Mexico, just to kind of boil it down, because um, it does apply to Africa and Asia. But, um, you know, in order to come, if you're from Latin America, unlike from Canada, where you just have to have a passport, and sometimes just fill out paperwork on, paperwork on the plane coming over. If you want to come from Mexico or Guatemala, you've got to fit into a box. And there are like 85 boxes that you could fit into. But the ov overriding all of that is that you have to demonstrate that you have strong ties to your home country. In other words, you have to demonstrate you will go home. And the way they decide that you have the U.S. government decides whether you have a strong tie to your home country is calculated by whether you own have title to land, which at the outset makes it impossible for indigenous people who live on communally held lands uh, to come to the country legally, to our country legally. It also discriminates at the outset because we're not talking about piddling amounts of money. We're talking about enough money that would disqualify somebody who wants to come so badly that they can sell a piece of land and their motorcycle and so forth and get together the $6,000 it takes for them to find a coyote that will bring them across or a, or a smuggler. So we're talking about large sums of money and title to property. And so if you cannot meet that requirement before you even have a line to get in, you're disqualified. Mm. If you can meet those requirements, then... Somebody has to come looking for you. Um, and so that's where things like the guest worker program come in. And so when Jordan was talking about the displaced workers in North Carolina, he was talking about people <coughs> excuse me, who came legally with a guest worker visa. But the employer goes looking for them and not the other way around. And quite often an employer will then go and look for someone with a particular profile, say a woman of a certain age. So, yeah, is the law the, the issue? It, it very much so is. I want to um, 
shoot you some arguments on the other side and uh, have you respond to those. You you feature a state senator, Beeson, this is, I guess from Alabama, in the film. Yeah. He talks, he, he gives the, the, the arguments that you hear often, uh, that uh, there's so many illegal immigrants coming from Latin America that there's a lack of assimilation, which has always happened in waves of immigration. He's worried about that. A lack of people speaking English, adopting the culture. And so he wants smaller numbers so you can be better assimilated and that therefore a stronger border. Uh, and I imagine you hear this this a lot. I wonder if you could respond to that. Yeah. Senator Beeson um, is um, a sort of key figure in the anti-immigrant movement in Alabama. He's one of the sponsors of HB 56 or House Bill 56, which has widely been considered to be the harshest anti-immigrant law in the country. Uh, I am proud to say that I was one of the plaintiffs represented by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, in a lawsuit against uh, Governor Bentley um, and others over the over the bill, and proud to say that the Southern Poverty Law Center was able to take out some of the worst parts of that bill. But Beeson um, is one of those people, he's, he's easy to dismiss in one way because he's so reminiscent of George Wallace, uh, sort of standing in the schoolhouse door, uh, you know, and saying segregation yesterday, segregation today, segregation tomorrow. Um, and he does kind of appeal to that sort of racist mentality. On the other hand, I find them... Uh, less easy to dismiss because he does talk about jobs in Alabama, and Alabama is a very poor state. Um, but, um, you know, he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it, too. Hmm. He, uh, he knows that I'm fixated on NAFTA and CAFTA and all that that has done to really hurt farmers and uh, small business people in Alabama, but he doesn't want to talk about free trade agreements. Uh, what he wants to talk about is these sort of easy-to-access uh, arguments um, uh, that basically have a sort of racist undertone to them, and he's, he's getting away with it. What about uh, jobs? As you look at this, you, you interview some union guys in, in, uh, in Alabama. Are illegal migrants taking jobs away from, you know, the citizens? Well, I think that's the wrong way to phrase a very important question. And um, the question, you know, the, the phrasing, are they taking jobs away? The problem is there are a limited number of jobs. And Alabama is an anti-union country. We're a right-to-work state, which means we make it very, very difficult for organized labor to represent uh, workers uh, effectively. Uh, and so you've got a system where now things like uh, um, construction work and particularly farm labor, um, what is happening is that American workers will not agree to go out into fields and be straight, sprayed with pesticides. But you get people, and it's almost as though there's a, a sense uh, in Alabama and elsewhere that somehow uh, working in tomato fields is inherently abusive, but that's the only way we can have a tomato. That was the argument used by the cotton kingdom, by the slaveocracy. Who will bring in our cotton if we don't have slaves? You can't get white people to do it. You know, so we've kind of come back to that argument, and it's just a false argument. Um, it's not that displaced workers are taking Alabamians' jobs. It's that the government, with free trade agreements and um, and other policies, uh, right to work laws, all of those things are taking jobs from uh, Alabama workers, white and. Um, African-American workers. Uh, but there is a competition for jobs. So it's a very gray area, very complicated. It doesn't lend itself well to a rally with placards and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, in my opinion, the advocacy movement uh, is not really grappling well, very well with this issue. Uh, and so it's just uh, we continue to make the problem worse because we keep looking the other way. 
while uh, more free trade agreements are signed, uh, while we don't deal with the fact that Alabama, for example, has an extremely regressive constitution that gives a lot of tax advantages to corporations, uh, we're not dealing with the fact that uh, Alabama has become other countries' cheap offshore uh, labor source. And so these are things we need to be talking about uh, um, in real terms and, you know, sort of put the uh, slogans and the mottos aside. And, Tom, I'd like to yes. speak to that a little bit, too. Um, you know, when I was working in North Carolina with H-2A workers, legally, farm owners have to try to offer those jobs to U.S. citizens first before they offer them to, to H-2A workers from, from places like, you know, the southwest coast of Mexico. Um, and I, in my entire time, the only U.S. citizen that I met while I was working with farm workers in North Carolina were people from Mexico and parts of Central America that became U.S. citizens through the Immigration uh, Reform and Control Act that was signed into law by President Reagan. Um, and I think a, a, another large um, sort of unmentioned item uh, so far is, is the issue of cheap labor. You know, um, and that's one of the biggest discrepancies between what the United States law says and what our economy says. Our economy says that we need cheap labor. You know, whether that is a, a, a moral thing or not, it's something that farm farmers need labor, restaurants need labor, um, we need people to build houses. But the, the way the system works now is that there's no way to keep farmers or, you know, certain restaurant owners, big businesses accountable to treat these people the way they should be treated. Um, and so that, I think, when we're talking about jobs and we're talking about labor, one, I think, as Ellen mentioned, most, most people aren't um, willing to do these jobs. But also, the, the, the pay, in, in most cases, is very low compared to what a minimum wage job might pay. Even minimum wage is low. Um, but there's also the issue of um, there's no accountability on employers to treat, um, to treat these workers. And like Ellen said, there's very poor union representation for a lot of these folks to treat these workers in a, in a humane way. Um, and, and I think that is a larger a really large problem, and it kind of goes to show how this immigration issue speaks to economic issues in the country as well. Ellen Jimerson, uh, uh, following up with what Jordan just said there about the, the guest workers and the economic benefits of illegal workers as well, uh, one of your main questions is who benefits, and I believe uh, in the film you're, you're saying businesses in the U.S. benefit, and they need to be held accountable. Right, and, and thank you for for getting that message because that is uh, that is those are the people who are benefiting. It's the large corporations. It's not the small business people. It's the large corporations. The corporations, for example, that are putting up the that are continuing to militarize the border. Um, for example, in one of the proposed bills recently, you know, there are businesses mentioned by name who will supply helicopters, for example, for example, in these uh, bills. Um, and it's the bigger uh, tobacco farmers, the bigger citrus growers, uh, the bigger textile uh, industries that are benefiting. Um, these are the primary beneficiaries. And uh, so that is what we really need to deal with. We've got to deal with free trade agreements that gives the advantage to these bigger producers. Uh, and another part of the piece, too, is that, for example, when you're talking about tomatoes, for example, um, the advantage with NAFTA went to Mexican producers of tomatoes. So Alabama, which traditionally had produced wonderful tomatoes, now those smaller farmers are put into compete into competition with these huge corporations in central Mexico. Um, and, you know, they just can't compete. Uh, so, yeah, it's the corporations, not just in the U.S., but in Canada and Mexico as well that are benefiting. I mean, following uh, free trade, um, you not only have a million and a half, maybe, peasants displacing corn and beans, but you did have the creation of about 10 billionaires. 
And so, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is 10 billionaires a good exchange for one and a half displaced peasants? We're talking with Ellen Jimerson, who's the filmmaker of The Second Cooler. That's the name of the documentary. It's about uh, immigration. Uh, and it refers to, the title refers to the uh, the fact that uh, Pima County in Arizona had to build a, a second, install a second morgue refrigerator to store human remains. Uh, between October 1st, 2000 and April 30th this year, remains of 2,541 migrants who had crossed the U.S.-Mexico border illegally were recovered in Cochise, Pima, and Yuma counties in Arizona. We're talking about these issues, and you're welcome to join us. We're also joined by Jordan Bullard, who's worked with displaced migrants and contributed music to the film. The way to join us here is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, perhaps you agree or, or perhaps disagree. We'd love to hear your comments. Uh, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page and by email. Upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. We have about uh, six or seven minutes left in our conversation here. And this is an email from Steve. He says, it's heartbreaking to hear the terrible economic repercussions NAFTA has had on the poor and the middle class in Mexico and the U.S., <clears throat> Excuse me. These same uh, countries, the United States, Mexico, and Canada, are in the process of negotiating a similar but bigger treatment called the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement with several nations on both sides of the Pacific, including Peru, Japan, Vietnam, and others. Though the terms are still being negotiated, some negotiators are seeking to recapitulate NAFTA on a greater scale. And he asks, has your guest been following these talks? Um, I've been following it to a degree, um, and of course, you know, here's the thing, uh, a free trade agreement is basically a free trade agreement. Um, its purpose is to remove tariffs so goods, corporate produced goods can cross borders freely. That's what the free is. So I think um, we need to be very cautious. These, these, the Trans-Pacific agreements are being carried out pretty much in secret. So it's very hard to know exactly what the content and what the language is. But I think it would be very um, foolish to assume that new free trade agreements will have, you know, substantially different effect, uh, effects than the old free trade agreements were, so uh, have, have had. So, yeah, I'm very, very concerned about uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, what, a, what about a, a, a pull back to the macro level? You've you've documented, um, you know, bad effects, horrible effects on individual Mexicans and other Central Americans. But uh, one argument I hear is that you want an economically strong, overall economically strong Mexico and and, and Central America, and to the extent that a free trade agreement can uh, produce a, an economically strong neighbor, that perhaps will equalize some of these inequalities that you've been talking about. I wonder what you think about that, that argument. Well, you know, I hear that, but I just don't know where the argument comes from. Um, you know, for example, uh, the Maquila uh, zone that was created in the 1960s in northern Mexico um, was not NAFTA per se, but again is free market liberalism. Um, and, it, you know, it's sold as a way to create jobs. But what is happening is that, you know, we've got policies that displace people from their lands, and then they go into an abusive, almost inherently abusive factory that provides them with a job, but is, you know, a, a job in which a woman, a pregnant woman, has to stand on her feet all day long, a good exchange for having been forced off of her land to begin with. That, to me, doesn't even pass the smell test. Mm. Just have about three minutes left. I want to get uh, maybe some final comments from each of you, uh, starting with Jordan Bullard. Uh, people you've talked to and the discussion that we've had here, uh, um, participation with the film, what what do you think is the best way forward? You know, I think the best way forward is a, a call to action. Um, the, the film has a lot of really great information in it, and um, I think it's really upon ourselves. I mean, we all have some stake in this, you know, um, whether we're, uh, regardless of what side of this issue we're on, 
um, we can take these facts and we can decide what our priorities are. And, you know, those priorities, could, if those priorities are keeping families together and, um, and honoring and respecting the work that people do and where they come from, or whether it's, you know, lining the coffers of big business in the military industrial complex, you know, we've got some decisions to make. And I think that this is a time for, for us, to, you know, to have a call to action um, and to really uh, propose these questions to the, the people who are in our governments, uh, you know, representatives, senators, all the way up to the top. Just have about a minute left to give you the last word, Ellen Jimerson. What What's the takeaway here, do you think? Uh, the takeaway in one minute is I think we need to be very, very cautious about the comprehensive immigration reform packages coming out of Washington. Uh, I think they're a bad deal for migrants and domestic labor uh, and for guest workers. I also want to, I know there are a, lot, there are a number of women uh, listening uh, one of the things that comprehensive immigration reform packages do not do is deal with the U.S. quota for deportations, which is 400000 a year. When we talk about families being split up or being united, um, we have to begin at the beginning with free trade agreements, which splits up families to begin with, and we've got to look at the end package, which is the private prison system, which is benefiting um, at, to the tune of 400,000 deportations a year, and that adds up to tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of mostly wives, but some husbands and children who have now been forced into exile, and quite often they become the ones uh, who live uh, in the shadows without lawful status. So we have got to halt deportations. Uh, we have got to deal with free trade agreements. Um, and I think we need to strengthen the unions on both sides of the border. We are out of time. Ellen Jimerson, filmmaker, has been with us. Uh, the film is um, The Second Cooler, and it's showing at the Red Rocks Film Festival in southern Utah. That uh, film festival is ongoing today uh, and through the weekend, and you can find out more information by just Googling uh, Red Rocks Film Festival. We've also been joined by Jordan Bollard, who's worked with displaced migrants and who contributed music to the film. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it a lot. And uh, thank you for listening to Access Utah. For producers Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Stay tuned for StoryCorps, and then join Brian Earl with the Zesty Garden. Thanks for listening. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Priscilla Hammond. My name is Marlene Hammond, and we are talking about our lives growing up in the plural culture. My sister Marlene and I consider ourselves false sisters, but there's something interesting about us because we, while we share the same father, we both have different mothers. So we grew up having five mothers in our home, which was a very positive experience for us, unlike so much that negativity that you hear about polygamy, our experience was totally different. Um, we all had common goals. We all believed the same. And then at, at some point in the 1960s, uh, late 60s, 70s, there were people who began to try to, in the community there, wanted to change things. They wanted to um, change some of the doctrines, some of the things that we believed. And there began to be a shift and a rift among the people that some people created. We were not willing to give up the principles and the things that we had been born and and grown up with, and some of them went along with another way. And so that's the point where we decided we had to move out of Colorado City, at least not be part of that main body of people, because they had changed things. We were not willing to change. The people in Colorado City have come up under a different rule now, and that's when they established the FLDS, so we never were a part of the FLDS. And that's important to, it to is. know that, we, that the people in Centennial Park have never been a part of the FLDS. The people in, in Centennial Park that we associate with are known as the work of Jesus Christ. And since and so today, people equate polygamy with the Warren Jeffs often times, and it's just absolutely not the case. There are many, many, many thousands of polygamists who don't even know Warren Jeffs, right. have never had anything to do with Warren Jeffs. And, and we're some of them. I haven't had anything to do with Warren Jeffs in my lifetime. I knew of him, but I don't, I don't have anything to, I don't have a knowledge, a personal acquaintance with the man. 
one of the things that we have really struggled with is trying to um, define ourselves as who we are, what we are, and that we are not what everybody thinks polygamists are because of what's been in the media, which is which brings me to um, the polygamy summit in 2003. Because of all the negative media and everything out there, the attorneys general from uh, Utah and Arizona decided they were going to get together and have a big meeting, and they invited law enforcement, even from Canada, I understand, and they were going to discuss the polygamy problem. I remember reading in the newspaper, and I was standing there at the kitchen counter reading that in the paper, and I thought, well, for crying out loud, this has gone beyond, you know. They, it just lit a fire in me, and I was to the point where I was so tired of people defining us Mm-hmm. without asking us what our lives were like. And it was like condemnation before investigation right. in my mind. And mm-hmm. they had never come in to find out what, if we enjoyed our lives or not. And they were accusing me of being a victim. And we said, and I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> you said, you know what we should do? We should go down there. A whole bunch of us, plural wives, should go down there and sit on the front row of that summit. And we should eye. just look those men <laughs> in the eye and show them that we are not victims of this of this culture, that this has been a blessing in our lives. Well, and we choose to be here. But before the day was over, we had called enough, enough women, and everybody had read the newspaper, and a hundred women hundred got together. A hundred ladies who had not poked their head up out of the sand for how many years? For almost trying 50, for families. over 50 years, mm-hmm. trying to protect our families. And we had finally said, okay, we are going to show up in mass and we are going to say, we are not victims. We live plural marriage because it's a cho- lifestyle choice that we have chosen. It has been good for us. We're not saying it's good for you, but it's good for us. It works for us. And we love it and our children love it. And we want you to quit calling us victims. To be able to go down there and stand in front of those people and see the looks on their faces I and the remember. shock on their right. faces that, that women would file. The room was so small that all we could do was line the walls. We standing just stood, standing only. room only. <laughs> and all of these plural wives were down there. And it was the feeling was wonderful. To go down there and to be able to speak and have some, some of the ladies were not afraid. And they stood up and spoke right out. One of the things that I think was important for me at that point was to be able to have a voice for my mothers who were beaten down by the law, for my father, for my family that were not able to speak and express themselves. And 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 I say, it is time to get rid of that law. And so I would say to the world, please reconsider the old antique laws against our culture. And it's time. It's time to allow us to live our lives too. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan.